Namaste, everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host, Kushal Mehra. All right, today's podcast is called War, the Making and Unmaking of Man. And to talk about war with me is Razib Khan. Razib, welcome. What's up, bro? Well, okay, let's start with this. <laughs> What's with you and war, man? Why did you have to write two essays on war? Well, no, I mean, the issue is, like, they're not two essays. Um, what happens is, so Substack, um, my sub, so Substack is limited by the length that, like, how much data an email will send before it truncates. And so when I get above 5,000 words, then I got to, like, split it up, right? So, you know, like, these are, like, it's an 8,000-word essay that I had to do in two parts so i mean i've had like a five-parter before like a his genetic history of finland and that was one thing originally that you know i broke down so i mean it, it is you know um as far as war i mean look i mean i try not to be too topical to the time but it's been on a lot of people's minds you know with the russian invasion of ukraine and all that stuff uh so i wrote you know a couple of a uh, couple of pieces on war that i think i like Everything on my pretty much everything on my Substack, you should be able to read years later and get almost the exact same value out of it. And I think that this is true of this, uh, these two pieces. But um, I did write them because I think people are thinking about war right now and why it's happening and the insanity of it. So maybe let's start with this. So why call it war and not conflict or is there a differentiation between say a mano a mano or a woman a man a woman on women or whatever yeah. gender they want to use yeah and let's say war so is mm-hmm. there a difference in your mind when you're writing this yes yeah so conflict is conflict is the superset category obviously war is conflict but i don't think all conflict is war so um if there's like domestic violence within the household that's conflict but that's not war you know um, if you go to another town and you have an enemy there and you beat them up, that's a fight. That's conflict, but that's not war. What is war? War, I define as an organized, violent, physical conflict between two different groups, usually, actually, probably necessarily with different um, identities of some sort, right? National identity, usually ethnic identity. Um, you know, it could be a regional identity, as in the United States. Although the United States, the Civil War, was actually, um, it was more than regional. It was an ethnic identity between Northern Yankees and Southern Cavaliers and, and whatnot. So usually there are different groups with different cultural identities um, that are engaged in organized violence against each other. So so would you say, when I, when we talk about something like war, so what's the qualifying criteria? How many people... Or how many subsets mm-hmm. need to be involved to categorize? So, so I'll give you a, a hypothetical, right? So is war post-agricultural or pre-agricultural? Mm-hmm. Or is war uh, also equally applicable to current hunter-gatherers? Mm-hmm. That's what I'm trying to understand. Yeah, so in my, in my piece, um, I do give examples of hunter-gatherer war. So the earliest uh, massacre of like a mass grave is found in Sudan. I think it dates to 13,000 years ago. So like right at the end of the last ice age, uh, definitely before agriculture, they're hunter gatherers. And when the Europeans came to Australia, they did describe Australian Aboriginal wars, which are clans and tribes coming together to engage in these vast melees. Um, so I think it's pre-agricultural 
and it's just it's it's about scale and we have to remember hunter gatherers you know they occupied much more fertile land before agriculture so some hunter gatherer groups were probably pretty large so yes i think hunter gatherers humans as foragers engaged in in war organized intergroup conflict okay i think they engaged in organized intergroup conflict we would call them wars uh they're small wars uh petty wars uh perhaps you'll say they're raids but um they are wars so so maybe talk about this thing you you in your piece you say war has driven the creation of what evolutionary theorist peter turchin refers to as ultra society as small human tribes scaled up to nation states so what mm-hmm. what what does he mean over there yeah so his he has a book called ultra society people should check it out it's a really good book um so ultra society is basically tries to explain how the ultra society emerged. So we are the ultra society. Uh, so, you know, you live in a country and a nation, state, nation, civilization, whatever you want to call it, of like what? Like you're at one point, like three, 1.3 to 4 billion, right? Um, I live in a nation of 330 million. Uh, these are societies that are agglomerations of hundreds of millions and billions. These are ultra societies like you social. Uh, we are as big uh, on the national scale as the biggest, you know, army or uh, ant or termite colonies. Right. Which are usually actually on the order of millions. They're not hundreds of millions or billions, you know, um, so we can scale really, really intensely. How did that happen? Um, so uh, I don't want to like totally. Like Turchin's thesis is, is, you know, complicated. There's some evolutionary thinking. But basically the idea is you have competition between groups and these are games and the groups have characteristics. And the groups that win, um, they spread their characteristics throughout the population, throughout the culture, throughout the species. Right. And so um, what happens is the bigger groups usually win, the bigger cohesive groups that can scale up, you know. So, for example, um, this is just a hypothesis, but I mean, it's probably true. Um, you might have a situation where uh, in, like 50,000 years ago, uh, you know, in Africa, some tribe decides that um, instead of just kind of like the regular um, animistic gods of like nature, they're going to worship a tribal god uh, from which all the men in the tribe are descended, like a father type of god right Uh, a totemic god and so perhaps it turns out that this abstraction of this you know immortal leader with these characteristics that everyone can emotionally attach to allows the tribe to scale larger and become bigger rather than simply depending on familial connections and just interpersonal relationships that need to be managed constantly um you know, maybe this this is a cultural invention that allows a bigger tribe, more powerful tribe. And so this tribe defeats other tribes. So what do you do now? Uh, you either like absorb the other tribes or get bigger or the other tribes mimic you. So all of a sudden they have tribal gods and all of a sudden all the tribes have tribal gods. Right. And so now the tribes are all bigger because having a tribal god allows you to scale more. So this is how you get the ultra society. Right. So, for example, um, Turchin has this idea of meta ethnic identity. So you have empires. How do you bind empires together? The simplest way to bind an empire together is through the charismatic figure 
of the emperor, right? The emperor and his family. And so this was like how Rome did it. And it's how China does it. But there's also an ideology around it. So Rome eventually got the ideology of Christianity. So, you know, under Christ, there's no Gentile, there's no Jew, right? All of the different nations uh, are under Christ. And so all of a sudden you have this empire with a singular religion, with a singular God, or, you know, triune God, but whatever, you know what I'm saying. Um, you know, the Islamic world is similar. Uh, Hindu world is similar, where you can go from one end of Aryavarta to the other end of Aryavarta, and it's all under the Dharma. It's all under a common law, set of rules. Ibn Battuta goes through the Islamic world from, like, China to, like, Morocco, and it's all under Sharia right? Like all the Islamic communities are under Sharia. And so these are like a common set of rules that span many ethnicities, whatever, you know, whether you're black or white or brown as a Muslim, it doesn't matter. Um, in India, it doesn't matter if you speak, uh, you know, South Indian language or you speak like Punjabi or whatever, or like, you know, one of the North Indian languages, you know, you're all part of Aryavarta um, from, you know, Jaffna all the way to the Himalayas, right? And in China, uh, you know, they have the idea, um, Oh, this Confucian idea that China is a civilized state um, and has a mandate of heaven under the emperor. And everyone can be Chinese, really, if you become civilized, because that's what to be Chinese is, uh, is to be civilized and to be civilized is to be Chinese. And so, you know, these barbarians are assimilated into the Chinese order. Right. So um, this is how the ultra society emerges. Now, I want to focus on war because how does. How does this sorting happen? How does this evolution happen? So how does evolution happen? Evolution happens through, you know, cooperation and competition, through reproductive fitness, through variation. And so I, I, I'm talking in the piece about like, okay, what are the fundamental cognitive characteristics that allow for war, violence, and aggression? This is the raw material. The raw material coalesces together into this cooperative entity. This cooperative entity engages in competition and violence with another cooperative entity. And so then you have selection. Selection happening between the groups, between their cultures. And then the culture that is better at war uh, will spread. Okay? Um, and so um, I give you guys another example. Uh, why did the Romans beat the Carthaginians? Uh, if you read a lot about the Punic War, uh, one thing that just seems clear is the Romans had a social organization uh, that allowed them to constantly um, replace soldiers lost in battle. So the Carthaginians could never totally defeat the Romans uh, because... They could win battles, but they couldn't win the war. And the Carthaginians, they used mercenaries and other things that just were not – they just they, they had, like, more limited capacity there. And so the Romans um, just kept bringing – throwing armies at them and just eventually overwhelmed the Carthaginians. It wasn't through – I mean, it wasn't really through technology. Uh, it wasn't through greater tactical genius. I mean, who was the best tactical genius during the Punic Wars? It was actually a Carthaginian general, Hannibal. I think everyone admits that uh, everyone should read the Battle of Cannae where Hannibal defeated the Romans. It was one of the um, it was like one of the greatest battles in history. And Hannibal brought these these elephants and things to Italy. He went all the way up along the coast. I mean, he did like all these things. Hannibal was a genius, uh, but he lost and he lost because the Romans had a better social organization. They were a better ultra society. Right? They, they scaled better. And there are historians like Walter Scheidel. Um, who studied this, who the Romans are kind of exceptional in terms of like 
uh like i mean how did they conquer the empire like what happened it just turns out they mobilized more of their society to military um just towards the military they just they had an incredible cohesion and group group solidarity for a period and that allowed them to expand obviously they lost that solidarity over time the empire fell but um the point is uh war is the method by which the selection is operating and so it's been creative in many ways. Um, another thing that I pointed out is um, so like, OK, like I'm just going to give you like weird examples, but this is really what, what I'm getting at. Canning. OK. Cans like canned food that was invented 200 years ago during the Napoleon, more than 200 years ago during the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, because, it's you know, for logistics and rations, like, you know, Napoleon said an army marches on its stomach. Right. And so they created canned food for that. So there's been a lot of things that were invented for war uh, because, you know, it's important to win a war. Like in the past, not in the recent past, but in the past, if your society lost the war, it could be that all the men are, are killed and all the women and children are enslaved. So you will do whatever you can to win a war, you know, in theory. And so that a lot that drives a lot of innovation, um, this like just intense competition. In fact, if I was to add to this, if I was to look at the modern day, uh, you know, military industrial complex, a lot of these inventions that we have, even the internet in many ways or many other things are in a, you know, in a way, the product of the military, right? The military gets yeah. interested the in internet, multiple things. Yeah, I mentioned that. I didn't mention DARPA. So DARPA, the internet, right? Uh, but um, I guess what I was, but um I did mention the computer. So the original computers, I mean, obviously there's the difference engine, there's Babbage's analog computer, but kind of like a quantum leap in computing did happen during World War II to solve certain problems, whether it's like cryptography, decoding, um, certain like trajectory related issues and whatnot. And then right after World War II, the military industrial complex really invested a lot in computing. Um, if you read about John von Neumann's life and his later research with Rand. So, so you say the instincts that lead to war are written in our very genome as the influence of our genes warps upward, shapes our psychology and nudges our social lives. Yeah. So so when we say um, the you know, written in our very genome, now now there is potential for people to commit the naturalistic fallacy over here, right? Uh, potential to say, uh, maybe in that sense that what do you mean when you say written in our genome as in we are just primed for it or or in what sense uh well i mean so um another i have another couple of pieces about like the choreos uh indo-european choreos like from a couple of weeks ago people can find on my Substack, and i have a graph on there it shows homicide rates pretty much everywhere in the world homicide rates peak with 21 year old males right Mm -hmm. And men are about 10 times as likely to commit murder as women. Okay. Um, so why is this? Uh, it's be I mean, men and women have a sex chromosome difference. Okay. So it's like, but really there's a biological difference between men and women. Uh, men are about like twice as strong in the upper body as women. Um, we have way more muscle mass proportionally. Uh, our aggression means we're more, um, our, our testosterone means we're more aggressive. Uh, so males between the two sexes are more violent. Uh, they're more prone to organized violence um, than females, right? And so that's what I mean written in our genes. Uh, this is primal. Um, probably we, 
I mean, look, I mean, there was like fighting within the clan, between the clans, probably um, in many areas, tribes were very territorial. And if it was a stranger, like maybe you'd like enslave them or something or just kill them. Like maybe maybe if you see a stranger in your territory, you just automatically think it's a scout and it's a they're going to raid or something. So you got to kill it, you know, kill the stranger. And so, um, you know, violence is part of our inheritance, just like peace is part of our inheritance. Obviously, we can be peaceful. Um, you know, it's, it's we can do that. Right. Just like we can be vegetarians and we can do like the Petersons do and just eat steak. You know, like we're flexible, you know, uh, so. That's just that's just a fact, and so it's not like. Look, I have sons. Um, you don't have to tell little boys. Um, you don't have to instruct them how to fight. Yeah, you know? uh, and so so, so, yeah. What do, so what does war do? War channels it. Um, I mean, what is sports? What is a lot of sports? It's mm -hmm. actually a way in lieu of military combat. Like a lot of sports emerged, like well, like polo is a very early sport, right? Polo is a, is a game of kings, but like I mean, it was polo was invented by Eurasian steppe nomads, like some of the most like warlike people in the history of the world, you know. So a lot of sports do come from, uh, you know, either militaries, like they did it in the leisure time, or it, it came from some military um, endeavor. Like I mean, archery, like where does that come from? You know, I mean, like obviously shooting by definition and so sports competition war um these are cultural endeavors that are co-opting uh tendencies uh, that our species has in particular males uh, males are much more into agonistic competition those of you who know evolutionary biology probably know why um you know we have to compete for mates and all that stuff um and so uh we snap into units uh into cohesive units periodically a band of brothers uh and we engage in intergroup competition too. And I think that this is an ancient thing. Uh, what modern wars are is kind of an artificial extension and scaling up uh, of that, obviously. Like, you know, like the American military is like a whole society. So it's it's really weird to compare it to an ancient, uh, you know, Neolithic war band. But um, when you get down to it, what is like SEAL Team 6 or whatever? Like it, it's a Neolithic mm -hmm. war band uh, that has like really modern... You know, I mean, it literally they behave like Neolithic war bands, like they hit and run, you know. Um, so the, the fundamental, you know, core is still the same. So so uh, so if I was to understand what you're saying is what is uh, there might be proximate differences, but at the ultimate level, we kind of behave the same way, even uh, when you use the example of the SEAL team. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. 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 All yeah. Right. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, we revert to form, you know, when you strip it away, when you strip it away, we can revert to form like a complex edifice of culture and civility and norms, you know, underneath that there's other things and you just need to poke at it, you know, and like, you know, we've seen this. Okay, so um, this is kind of unrelated to war, but it's kind of related to war, um, you know, Germany, Nazi Germany. I'm not like, I mean, I've read The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. I've read some Nazi stuff. I'm not like super into it because, you know, kind of like figure it out after like the first couple of passes, you know. But the issue is like, you know, if you want to, uh, the Nazis, like, they did so much. They kept doing like so much different, diverse, bad stuff. You could spend a lifetime reading about the different evil things they did. Because like, it wasn't just the same evil stuff. So I just found out two days ago. Um, you guys can Google it. 
Um, they apparently found a graveyard uh, of buried individuals. Half of them were babies outside of St. Petersburg. And uh, it looks like it was a blood farm. So the Nazis had a blood farm of children, babies, pregnant women. Um, and what happens is, so they were doing the siege of, siege of Leningrad. And when the SS soldiers would lose a lot of blood and they were injured, they'd get a baby, drain the baby, put it in the soldier. And then, of course, the baby dies and they would just bury the baby. Oh, my goodness. So I'm, I'm giving you this example being, OK, the, who are the Nazis? Uh, these are people. It's Germany. This is like, um, you know, the land of Goethe, Schiller, you know, Beethoven. Um, I mean, this is like a very civilized people, right? Um, you know, people of Nietzsche, uh, Schopenhauer, Kant, uh, just name it, right? Name it. And then, like, within, within, like, 15 years, we're talking, like, horror show stuff. You know, and, and like, the like things this. that they did, our Neolithic ancestors did, like, atrocities, too, against women and children, you know? So, but, um, I mean, they added a little bit of technological pizzazz so that... um you know, yeah. Yeah. So their barbarism had a little bit of upgrade. That's all we can say. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. okay. So, so uh, this was something interesting that you've written, the killer ape hypothesis and how you disagree with it. Maybe you could explain that because I found that very interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of like the origins of war, I think I had to mention the killer ape hypothesis by Raymond Dart. And basically the idea is like, okay, well, humans, why do we have these stereoscopic eyes? Why do we have this big brain? Uh, why do we cooperate with each other, et cetera, et cetera? Well, it's because on the savannah, we became predators, right? We were the killer ape. We were like the carnivorous ape, basically. Um, obviously, we can eat vegetables and there's ga gathering and stuff like that. But Raymond Dart and like the killer ape people basically dismissed it. And they were like, we we have a big brain because we need a big brain and big eyes that are stereoscopic, that are forward looking uh, to hunt animals. And we have to cooperate to hunt animals. We kill the animals and we eat the meat and the meat is high calorie density and that feeds the brain. Um, and it, it, and we have to be upright because we have to see the animals. So there's all these sorts of explanations for why humans are the way they are because they're like cooperative hunters you know, cooperative hunters. So it's driven by males. Um, and so, the, and this is also why we're violent, right? Because we are violent uh, hunters. We're carnivores, you know, um, we're beasts. Well, I mean, what I point out is one, uh, our mostly fruititarian cousins uh, engage in cannibalism and wars as well. Uh, the common chimpanzees and the bonobo actually. Um, the gorilla is a total vegetarian. I mean, Okay, like most vegetarians will actually eat meat sometimes. Uh, so I, I, I want like I don't want someone to be like, well, actually, like I looked this up and um, I, yes, gorillas will eat meat sometimes. But it's like almost totally a vegetarian. But male gorillas are enormous and they have harems and they're intensely um, violent with each other uh, to defend their harems. Right. And so they're not carnivores. They're not hunters. But. You know, there's some violence there. There's some aggression there. So we don't need, like, the hunting and all that stuff to explain it. We have a lot of archaeological evidence now that um, we're just very diverse in terms of what we can do. Uh, we can we can facultatively, like, be beachcombers and rely on marine resources, so foragers. We don't really – it's not really hunting. It's kind of gathering, but gathering 
animal, you know, protein. Um, obviously, we hunt in many situations. So in Siberia, you're going to be hunting a lot because for a lot of the year, there's not much to gather, you know. So, you know, animal protein is a big deal. Uh, so, you know, Eskimos, Inuit, um, there's not much green in the Arctic. Um, so one thing that they do is they eat seaweed that's partly digested in the stomachs of the seals they kill. Because you need you need like some vitamins, some micronutrients from vegetables. You know, you can't you. I mean, I don't know how the Petersons are living just on steak, but, you know, um, maybe they take like there are. I, I, I have a friend who's basically a carnivore, but he takes supplements. He takes like uh, vegetable supplements, basically. It's like a green pill. And that's all. He doesn't like vegetables. Anyway, so um, the point is a killer rape hypothesis is wrong because there's a lot of archaeological and evolutionary evidence. So we're just like too diverse. We're not just like pure hunters right like our violence doesn't come from pure hunting um that is that is focusing on like oh human interaction with other species but a lot of our violence and a lot of our aggression like in a lot of species is intraspecific it's it's human to human you know and so i think that that's the key thing uh we're cooperative we're social and you know in a malthusian environment where you're competing for scarce resources um, did you watch the movie Noah? No, I'm not, man. Not so, guys movie. out there, um, go to YouTube and Google movie Noah cannibalism. Um, you'll see some pretty scary YouTube scenes from that movie. Basically, the movie Noah is about before the flood. And before the flood, the world is totally packed with humans. Malthusian limit. There's like almost no trees. It's packed with cities. And uh, everyone's like really hungry. And so, you know, there's a scene where they like, throw out an animal into a crowd of humans and they tear the animal apart and just eat it raw, you know? And so the point is the situations of scarcity, people act crazy because they're hungry, you know? And so when humans um, hit the Malthusian limit, they're going to start competing with each other in groups, right? And so just like other animals, there's animal competition um you kill your neighbors or you drive them away you have a bigger territory and you can survive like you know they must die so that you must live like these are the sort of things that happen uh in organisms that are you know competing now if you're herbivore that doesn't really happen too much i mean herbivores can be territorial like you know like whatever like antelope but what usually i think what happens with them is um you know they're kept in check by predators uh and, um, you know, predators can uh, uh, keep them in check. But, I mean, if the predators aren't keeping them in check, then, you know, they're going to overgraze and famine type situation, right? But um, you have other situations where um, animals are packed together and they start attacking each other with cannibalism or just aggression because they want more resources. So, I mean, tadpoles will do this in ponds that have too many tadpoles at the beginning. Um, some of the tadpoles will become cannibals to clear out clear out room from the other tadpoles, right? And so I'm not saying humans are necessarily cannibals. Humans do do ritual cannibalism. But really, I think what humans do is uh, we're good at reproducing, filling up the environment. And then once we're at, like, peak um, density, uh, we start clearing each other out. So, you know, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? Uh, you know, like, war is one of them, you know? Uh, there's obviously mm -hmm. pestilence and other things like that, but I think war um, conflict was a was a was a big way that that people probably got killed in the past or died. So, 
Just a query. So when you say the Malthusian remit, is this the same guy who had predicted India is going to have a huge problem about agriculture and all that stuff? Yeah, I mean that was that was um, Paul Ehrlich. I don't think Thomas Malthus t- thought too much about India. He was actually focused on um, focused on um, mostly England. But um, so I will say something about Malthus. Uh, there, there's kind of like a misunderstanding of of him. And I, you know, I had this misunderstanding when I was a kid too. So Malthus like said two things, and one of the things he said was right, and one of the things he said was wrong. Uh, the thing that he said was pretty much right during his time, and in fact, even to the modern day, with the exception of maybe the '60s with the Green Revolution, is that our improvements in agricultural technology will kind of Im- in- increase geometrically, right? So more linearly, let's say more linearly, right? So they get better over time, but our our population will increase exponentially. So the population mm-hmm. will outrun our technological growth. What? So Malthus was right about the geometric improvement of agriculture um, in general. I mean, at least for a century up until the Haber-Bosch process and artificial fertilizer. Um, what he was wrong about was he did not anticipate the demographic transition. And so instead of the population catching up to the increased agricultural output all the time with industrialization and urbanization – all of a, and like you know lower infant mortality all of a sudden the fertility rate started crashing and so we don't live in a malthusian world because the fertility rate cla- rate crashed where, and um, our agricultural techniques kept getting better with fertilizer green revolution and so we we got out of the trap but we got out of the trap by just not reproducing as much as malthus expected we would reproduce because for most of human history people reproduce right to their um like you know i just with the you know with the income that i have i i could probably have dozens of children (laughs) um i i think that they would all be wearing each other's clothes you know i mean i'm just saying like i'm not saying they'd be living at a high standard and so that's why i have three children you know that's why i have three children you know what i'm saying because um we expect our children to live a certain standard and also like we don't anticipate our children will die so we don't like have all these backup children infant mortality is low right so um but in terms of war um one of the common theories for the origins of war is just malthusianism uh that um you know when you hit a limit uh in your territory um you're just going to engage in intergroup competition Hmm. all right so then you go into you know, you call it Darwin versus Marx, but I want to talk about something else with you over here. I want to talk about maybe Hobbes versus Rousseau, the Hobbesian model and the Rousseauian model of looking at the world. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for people who may not know, so Rousseau had this uh, model which he used to call the noble savage, right? That uh, people were really nice to each other. Everybody was holding hands together and singing Kumbaya. Obviously, mm-hmm. I mean, kind of mocking the view and paraphrasing yeah. it but that that was pretty much the Rousseauian view and Habesian view was slightly different uh, mm-hmm. I guess the closest uh, pro, in modern day parlance to promote the Habesian worldview if I'm not ra- wrong uh, would be Steven Pinker right he would be more in the Habesian kind of uh, way of looking at yeah things. I mean he I mean and I think the blank slate that was what he was that that was a view he kind of defended yeah yeah. yeah. So, so, so maybe, maybe we can touch upon the Rousseauian view. So, what, what do you think uh, uh, would be problematic according to you in the Rousseauian view? Because according to Rousseau, what, when you are talking about war, you because he, I, I'll say very specifically because in your 
essay, you you clearly when you talk about it, you talk about a hundred thousand year journey which takes up let's say to a thousand BC or something where you say we come and we have formed ourselves as a species and we've consistently fought all the time. And I remember reading, so pardon me, people, I'm very bad with names when it comes to books, but I recently read a book on uh, anthropology. Uh, I think it was Joseph Kelly. I remember Azab, I told you about this book too. Uh, in a uh, Lawrence Keeley, Lawrence Keeley, the war before Lawrence Keeley. Yeah, Lawrence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 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 so there are different anthropological models, and those anthropological models, uh, you know, work around a lot of assumptions. They make a lot of assumptions about how people behave and how uh, these problems come. Like he talks about different models the patch model or that something called a diet model and how different things lead to different results so so if i was to ask you why why do you think what what are the fundamental problems with uh, say the rousseauian view then according to you I mean, so i i do want to say like what you're saying is is the standard uh description of the rousseauian view um I haven't read Rousseau in a long time. My understanding is it was a little bit more subtle or complicated than that, but that's what people take away from it. So I think, like, let's go with the Rousseauian view. I mean, I think the issue with the Rousseauian view is that um, the state of nature is is subject to scarcity and uncertainty. And so um, you cannot live in this, like, kind of kumbaya you know, like if there was guaranteed universal basic income in the Paleolithic, it would work, but there wasn't. Like you know, you know, if you didn't work, you died. Um, and so, you know, reality imposed. Uh, you know, it just imposed things on us, and so you know, scarcity. There's no free lunch. I mean, this is just reality. Uh, and so, also in the Rousseauian view, I mean, there's issues relating to game theory, where it's like, um, you know, if if you're like nice to everybody, they're going to take advantage of you. And then the cheating strategy spread. And so you need to do tit for tat, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So I think the, you know, the Rousseauian view is just like too extreme. We have some of that. We have some of this like natural noble savage, you know, all human beings have some element of goodness and badness. And however we define it, we have differences in terms of our ethics and morals based on what our cultures decide and historical progress and all these other things. Um, but uh, I think the Rousseauian view uh, just ignores economic, evolutionary, ecological realities. So, uh, so, okay, let me play the devil's advocate here. So the Rousseauian would say maybe <laughs> The, the evolutionary theory itself is based on certain broad-based assumptions that may not be true. And they would pick this particular tribe, let's say in X part of Africa or sub, in the Amazon uh, area. And they'll say, look, they don't behave like that. So here, I'm Dr. Razib Khan, I've proven you wrong. Yeah. yeah so the, the issue is like, um, there are going to be exceptions over time to the rules. So, I pointed out my piece. Uh, there's a Chatham Islanders uh, off New Zealand. They're a branch of the Maori people. Um, what happened is they got isolated. I think they actually like forgot how to do the kayaks. Um, and, you know, they became really peaceful. Um, it was just an experiment. Uh, or, you know, it was a social change. Because the Maori were pretty violent uh, and warlike. Um, their ancestors that arrived. But then they got isolated, and they're like, you know, we're going to change, or we're going to become peaceful. And they stayed pretty peaceful. And um, the Europeans discovered them, and were like, oh, they're just like Maori, but they're peaceful. 
And um, so the Maori found out about them, I think, and they um, sent sent an expedition and they enslaved them. You know, um, and so my point to use that illustration is this is what I'm saying when you have competition. Right. There was this like peaceful group that's like, we'll be nice to everybody. Even our, you know, they were accommodating to their Maori cousins. And then the Maori cousins were like, okay, we're going to kill you now. We're going to enslave you now. Why? Because we can. Right. And so Vegetius, the uh, the historian, the strate uh, strategos um, from like the fourth century AD said um, to maintain the peace, prepare for war, you know? And so um, that's, that's how the Rousseauian view fails. And like we have many illustrations of that. There are many illustrations of there are many illustrations of societies that have not known war, uh, but I, those societies are not going to persist for a very long time uh, if unless they can defend themselves. So here's an evolutionary analogy. There are many asexual lineages of insect, um, and they tend to reproduce faster because if they're all females, you know, they all gestate. Um, but they have short lifespans evolutionarily because they tend to go extinct. Uh, there's evolutionarily brittle, right? So you can have this idea of like, you know, like it's great living in a peaceful society, right? You chill, you know, you don't have to prepare for war. I mean, have you seen the movie 300? Like those guys, like they went through a lot, right? I mean, you don't get mm -hmm. abs like that without a lot of work, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but, uh, you know, the issue is like, yeah, you don't prepare for war and your neighbors conquer you. You know, you become the helots. You become Messina, you know, and uh, Sparta conquers you. So um, that, that's how I would answer to that. Because there's going to be plenty of exceptions. I mean, this is a statistical distribution over time. And that's what evolution is. That's what um, biological science is, statistical distributions. They're not deterministic like Newtonian mechanics. Yeah. You know what I was thinking? The, how much of a factor war is? Obviously, in your part two, you talk about the Odyssey as an example, you start with that. But I was just thinking about, you know, where I come from, my culture. Like, imagine how many books, like, even inside the Rig Veda, there is a Varshagira yeah. war. This is the Dasha Rajna war. Yeah. The, the Bhagavad Gita is literally in the middle of a battle. Mahabharata is about a war. Ramayana is about uh, sure, sure. You know, a conflict. So, so in, in a very weird sense, if you look at it from a larger perspective, and and if uh, if I was to use an evolutionary psychology uh, example where you look for universal behaviors, so even if we look for universal behaviors, cutting across post-agricultural civilizations, you'd find this trend where a lot of literature too, in a very interesting way, is actually based on wars. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so I didn't get into this because it was about war. It wasn't about like society and sociology and po politics. So what happens is you start to get like, you know, there are like in agricultural societies, like basically all able bodied men are warriors, right? You pick up the spear uh, and instead of hunting with it, you go raid your enemy. Okay. But then what happens in agricultural societies uh, is, um, okay. You have to sow the crops and harvest the crops, and that causes a limitation on you. So how about you sequester some of your harvest and you give it to a specialized caste of warriors? And they can protect you all year from your enemies. Okay? But, okay, your neighbors see this and they're like, okay, we got to do the same thing. So now there are two castes of warriors, right? And then there's the farmers who can farm and 
you know, they they do economic production. That's great. Here's the problem, though. All of a sudden, the warriors start realizing, you know what? Okay, we don't need to work for them. <laughs> they can work for us, right? And so that's what always happens, you know. I mean, and this actually happens like relatively recently. Um, you know, if you know like what happens to Mamluks uh, in the Islamic world, uh, the slave dynasty, you know, in India, uh, they're called a slave dynasty because they were slave soldiers, you know. Um, so they, the soldiers, the mercenaries, eventually they're like, wait a second, we got the weapons. Why are we working for them? Right. And so, so that's, you know, this is, so by the time of the iron age, these warrior castes, uh, early iron age, warrior castes became extremely dominant and the warrior castes must've emerged, uh, because you had these specialized societies and you started having artisans and everything else. So you're like, okay, we got to have soldiers. So the Chinese were really, really, actually, they were worried about the warrior caste. Um, they had the Shang dynasty. They had a period where, where these warlords were very dominant. And they always had like social regulations in various ways to get the warrior caste, uh, one, not to be a caste, uh, but two, also just like to have it low status. This meant that they were actually vulnerable to invasion. Uh, by barbarians, but thank God China for itself is actually relatively isolated, right? The Europeans didn't have that benefit, you know? Uh, they're more exposed, et cetera, et cetera. Europeans are very warlike people when other people encountered them, like in the early modern period. Like that's what other people, one thing other people said, they're like, uh, they worship three gods. Um, they don't take baths and they're really warlike, you know? And I say three gods of Trinity. You know what I'm saying? And so, like, these are the, this is what, what they observe. And so, um, in Europe, the warrior caste because remained the dominant caste. Uh, arguably, in the Islamic world, I think that's true too. Uh, in India, there was like a somewhat different thing um, where uh, the priests became preeminent. So, in Indo-European societies, uh, traditionally, the warriors are preeminent and the priests are ancillary. Um, the, the, the priestly caste is ancillary and in India it flipped, right? So whatever, like some, some different things happen there, but yeah, I mean, these similarities are partly this evolution, convergent evolution, partly it's genealogical. There's actually parts of, uh, uh, parts of the Iliad, um, that have exact, uh, exact, um, analogs in the Mahabharata. Uh, and like also the, um, Castor and Pollux are the Ashvin twins. And stuff like that. So there's there's similarities, and so that's actually genealogical. There's genealogical connect, and also like um, Achilles is like Arjuna, except he's way more of a dick. <laughs> I mean, he's way less ethical. Let's put it that way. You know, mm. no Dharma except his own glory. Let's put it that way. You know? Yeah, yeah. He, I guess a, I don't know. It's just the level of philosophical uh, evolution was also there. Maybe they are at different times and. Those societies yeah, yeah. are at different levels. Well, so I mean that. So I, I pointed out in the piece what happened during the Axial Age, like around 500 BC. You have all of these like ethical, philosophical religions, and I think they emerged partly because they're like, okay, we have these like. This is actually Peter Turchin's idea too. Um, he's elaborated. I, I want to give him credit in his works. He's elaborated in detail. Uh, war, peace, and war, but uh, I think is the one he talks about a lot. It, you know, these warlike societies are really unstable. They're killing each other. Um, they have a lot of coups internally. And so at some point, you got to be like, okay, there's got to be more than war uh, 
in the world. Uh, we need some stability and some peace. And so you introduce this idea of like religions and like a king in heaven who mediates all these things. You know, in the Chinese society, uh, the warrior caste, the Xi, uh, the gentry, uh, they give rise to people like Confucius. And so instead of like the sword, they go with the pen, the quill or whatever, um, the stylus. And they start like, you know, transforming themselves in certain ways. And so, you know, that happened in the Roman world, too, where like you had like a civilian aristocracy, even though they also like led, um, you know, led the legions periodically. So obviously, like pure militarism tends to degrade into like barbarism. It's unstable. It's just it's not a stable scenario uh, to have. Uh, everything dominated by a martial ethos you have to have balance and the axial age brought that balance back so you have you know jesus christ who obviously is not a warrior uh prince of peace uh you have someone like the buddha or mahariva uh you know uh in china the confucians were mocked for being uh peace loving unwarlike uh you know islam is somewhat different because muhammad was uh, a warlord as well as a prophet uh, but, you know, uh, in theory, the abode of Islam is the abode of peace. Right. So Muslims are not supposed to make war on each other. And there are rules of war with, um, you know, the Darul Harb, the abode of war where you can war, you know, Christians. Um, they had, you know, the rules, the rules of warfare that were supposed to mitigate conflicts between Christians and all this stuff. So um, war was a constant pressure and we developed cultural evolution uh, to dampen it. And reduce it because war is glorious and it shapes it shapes the, the souls of men, but is also hell. You know? So and uh yeah. So how do we understand war? Do we understand war more at a group selection level or at a kin selection level? Um it it depends on what type of war. Um if it's uh if it's like um a prehistoric tribe, it's probably more of a kin selection, although there's still group selection aspects going on. Uh, by the time you're getting to um, early polities and the early empires, like the Bronze Age, Iron Age, I would say it's more of a group selection thing. And it's cultural group selection in particular. Uh, so, uh, you know, I point out um, the victory of Caesar over the Gauls was not a biological conquest because the modern French are predominantly descended from the Gauls. It was a cultural conquest because the modern French speak the language of the Romans. They speak Caesar's language and uh, their Christian religion is Roman Catholicism, you know, and when the Franks conquered them, they called themselves Romans. They had become Romans in their mind. Right. And so that's a cultural conquest. It's cultural selection uh, the spread of the Romance languages is the victory of that uh, Latin culture. Mm. All right. So maybe peace. now we, yeah. So, so basically it, the gist of this part where you write more destruction than creation. So before I segue into what I want to maybe have it as our closing discussion is, so I guess the history of humanity is the history of people who won in the end, right? They're just people fighting and the ones who survived to tell their story. Is yeah, that pretty much the history of humanity? I mean, that's a necessary. I mean, yeah. I mean, at some level, yes. But I mean, some well, warlike ones didn't always win in the end. And I didn't. I want I'm going to write a later post, probably considerably in the future, because I want to write other things right now. Um the axial age is the victory of the weak against the strong, mm -hmm. uh, of the ethical weak against the strong, because ideas are more powerful than the sword, right? Because blood and bone are finite. Like you can defeat their body, 
Uh, you can destroy the scholars in China, but you can't burn all their scrolls. Their ideas persist. And so Imperial China is the heir of the people that were physically oppressed, but intellectually ascendant, you know, and, you know, Christianity conquered the Roman Empire. You know, these sorts of things. Um, Hinduism, uh, you know, transformed from Vedic ritualism where there was animal sacrifice and whatnot. And Hinduism, Buddhism, all of these movements were, you know, promoting vegetarianism and all these other, you know, peaceful activities. And, you know, in India, um, the, the Brahmin is above the warrior, you know, in ritual purity. So um, I think like, the next thing that I would talk about uh, would be kind of like the transformation of the valence of war and um you know in some societies it's complicated because like so let's say britain during its imperial period this is a warlike society ruled by you know gentry that serve in the navy and officer class and all that stuff you know um the you know prince charles uh and and you know harry and 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 william like to this day uh and philip uh their profession is as soldiers you know, so the ruling class are soldiers, um, they're officers, but they're also Christian and Christian uh, Christianity is like, you know, it valorizes peace. So there's like that tension there. But you have societies like in much of Europe um, where militarism is still at, still at the forefront. And then you have other societies like China where um, they really uh, did not like militarism. Uh, they thought it was bad and, um, you know, destructive to human flourishing and. I mean, it kind of was, you know, um, they, the, the European, the European elite had like they had a different interest because they got their status through victory because, you know, there's all these states that are competing and stuff in China. It's like one empire. So, like, how would how would you, how would you fight in a war? Well, I mean, it would be like a civil war, which is bad or you're a brigand. Right. So um, I think that there's these diversities of views, but you're seeing a generalized Pinkarian tendency to diminish uh, the respect for war. War is all of a sudden a tragedy. Mm -hmm. So, so you, you write this, you say human minds and cultures are fundamentally poorly equipped for a nuclear age when the heads of several states could unleash, could each unleash weapons of such ferocity that none has dared to again. This is a horror that announced their birth 75 years ago, but a small probability is not a zero probability. Um, Okay, okay, let me put it this way. All right, I understand what you're trying to say over here that uh, you have the probability of the nuclear button being pressed and uh, the potential for devastation at off uh, because of the nature of the nuclear warhead itself is so high that you know humanity as we know could be done. But then at the same time, don't you think it has also led to a lot of peace because of the mutually assured mm -hmm. destruction that it that is there? So so how do you figure you know kind of uh, yeah. balance the two scenarios out but they don't need to balance it's like you know um you can have a situation i think i don't want to say it like this because it's not very optimistic but uh here in the united states um uh one strategy of forest fire suppression is um we're very proactive and we prevent any burning from occurring and um okay so there's very few forest fires the problem is um with so little burning there's vast, vast, like, dead tinder that's drying over decades. So when there is a fire that breaks out that can't be suppressed, it is a megafire. It is a cosmic fire. It is a gigafire. 
right? And so um, you have a situation where you can dampen risks, dampen um, problems, and then it gets to the point where when there is a problem, you have no defense uh, because, you know, all of these things have come to the head and they boil over. Um, with nuclear war, I think that could be I think it obviously is similar, like nuclear weapons have a massive deterrent effect, although, it, you know, I mean, Russia's still invade doing a conventional invasion of Ukraine. I mean, anyway, I don't want to get into that. But the point is, yes, I agree with you. Uh, nuclear weapons have a massive deterrent effect. The problem is like, it is totally irrational uh, to do a nuclear exchange, but humans do irrational things all the time. And uh, so, you know, if there's like a 100, one out of 100 chance, I mean, you guys can you guys can Google this. There's something in the early 80s, I think. And there was like some Canada geese flock, something like that, um, that was like in the United States or Russia. There was almost a couple of times during the Cold War uh, where there was an inadvertent false alarm and they were going to, like, release an ICBM. And, like, I, one of the cases, the Russian the Russian commander uh, who was supposed to do a yes um, contra, contravened it and was just like, no. Now, if he was wrong, Russia would have gotten bombed by an ICBM. Yeah. But, but he just was like, no, I'm not going to do it. And it turned out it was it was a false alarm, you know. Yeah, there was a movie on this too in Hollywood. Yeah, and so my my point is like, okay, what if he had actually followed his official orders? Because he's like, there's there's nuclear weapons coming to Russia. The rule is mutual assured destruction. That's his order. People follow orders, you know. I mean, like for example, I mean, people don't always do the rational thing. You know, we look. They, the Germans knew, especially by Stalingrad, that they were going to lose. They, I mean, okay, not the average German, but um, you know, the leadership of the Wehrmacht, et cetera, et cetera. That's why they tried to do multiple assassination attempts and coups, uh, but um, they didn't do as much as you would think uh, because people just continue to follow orders, even if they're crazy. And so my point is we're not totally rational. We're mostly rational, but we're not totally rational. And if you're not totally rational, something crazy can happen. Also, people, they end up doing things that they don't mean to do because one thing leads to another. You know, yeah. one thing leads to another. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, you know, I would, don't have a choice. I'm going to have to do this, you know. And I don't actually necessarily believe there's going to be a nuclear winter that's going to, like, destroy all human life. But I do think some sort of nuclear exchange um is going to transform things uh if there's like one nuclear bomb if like north korea sends a nuclear bomb to japan and kills like five million people okay it's really bad for japan it's kind of bad for the world but it's probably not gonna have a massive impact on the rest of the world directly in terms of climate but that that act will have broken a taboo one nation now besides the united states uh has used a nuclear weapon on another nation and there's a lot of nuclear armed states now, you know, you know that in the Indian subcontinent. So um, once the taboo is broken, uh, I do think it's going to be much more likely that somebody else will break the taboo again. And um, I'm not saying we're going to get habituated towards nuclear exchange, but right now it is um, unthinkable. I think like it would be a massive it's unthinkable, like a global pandemic. It was unthinkable, you know. Mm -hmm. Like, it's like we're supposed to, like, have a global pandemic for decades, and all of a sudden, 
after since 1967 we haven't had a big one and then we had a big one right and then it happened so you know we were scared of the nuclear winter and the cold war and then nothing happened and now we're basically like ah like no it's never gonna happen until it does so um i think if we kept keep having nuclear weapons and we're in the status quo situation yes like somebody some stupid nation or stupid you know the issue is like there are countries where uh there are no safeguards like the leader of the country can you know press a button or whatever you know or you know i mean i don't think it's just a button but you know what i'm saying uh, it, it, it a very very crazy leader could do this and then the subordinates maybe have to proactively block that person but then they have to make a judgment whether the leader is crazy or whether the leader is rational and this is what the leader wants to do and so legally they should do you see what i'm saying i mean it's like yeah. do you really want to rely on humans like making all these decisions all the time i think like most of the time it'll work out but some of the time it might not so essentially what you're saying is civilization is a very thin veneer uh, yeah i mean that's what i was like you know with like the the blood babies I mean, I think Germany is proof that civilization is a thin veneer because that was arguably the most civilized, cultured nation in Europe. It was the most philo-Semitic nation on continental Europe in the 1920s. It was the most pro-Jewish nation on continental Europe in the 1920s. Um, I'm, I'm not trying to scare anybody out there, but I mean, I, I think Germany, Germany is a warning that nobody is uh, invulnerable. Hum, humans are not invulnerable to this sort of like uh, regression and barbarism. I mean, let me go back to um, you know the Mycenaeans and the Iliad and the Trojan War and all that. Um, the legends of the Cyclops came from classical Greeks, like let's say like end of the Dark Age, 800 BC. They saw these like vast, um, vast citadels with like you know stone without mortar and stuff like that. And they were like, oh my god, like it must have been like giants that made those, like giants. Those were their own ancestors, 400 years earlier. So humans like in Greece had regressed, like they didn't have writing. Um, their ancestors had become legends and heroes and giants. Like they were amazed by these vast fortifications that were built uh, by these alien people. Those alien people were their own ancestors, but they had fallen so low, you know. And so we too could fall one, low. Yeah. One last question. So in that sense, what, what do you make of all of this in the age of social media, where? You know, every day we go on social media and uh, we have these <laughs> doomsday scenarios, which obviously are not borne by the data. I guess whether it's Ridley or whether it's Pinker, I think they, they are more correct than, say, Nassim Taleb, who says, oh, they're wrong. I don't know. I, I, I don't buy Taleb's analysis over there because Taleb always uses that one single event to say it's got all, it's uh, shit is going to hit a roof. So in that mm -hmm. way, in a very weird way, in a comical way, don't you think social media is good because you know all these angry people, uh, they get to take out their frustrations on a daily basis and then they go back into their rooms and <laughs> live a very peaceful life. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that there is um, the argument that for displaced aggression and rage, I think that that is a legit one. Like, I think also, you know, um, you know, I don't think pornography has been really great for American society, honestly. But I think like some people that were rapists and other things probably spend their time looking at really perverted pornography instead of raping. You know, okay. So let some of the let me explain it to you by an even contemporary example. See, I watch mixed martial arts. Let me tell you, if mixed martial arts did not exist, a lot of these people who are mixed martial artists 
or boxers, they would mm-hmm. have been career criminals. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, some of them become criminals, right? I mean, they, they go between the two. Yeah. But just think yeah. about it. Like, look at the story of Mike Tyson. He was stealing stuff. And then he finds Customaro. Customaro yeah. takes him in, nurtures him, brings him up. And that's the story of so many fighters, right? They they have yeah. this instinct. They're just like, they're proverbial hammers looking for a nail. Yeah. And then they find this thing which teaches them to control their anger. So yeah. they're like a directed missile. So in that sense, what I'm trying to say is social media, in a very weird way, has kind of given us this outlet where we can, in an extremely non-physical way, lash out at each other. And while we might think the world is burning, it's actually just burning in front of our screens because we are releasing all our anger there. And then we go back to our yeah. friends and we're just relaxed, right? No, I agree. I agree. I agree. I think I think that's true. Um, well, okay, like if everyone becomes like a fat like lump in front of a screen in the metaverse, obviously all of this stuff about war. So I, you know, I mean, like one of the issues with no, why are you laughing, man? One of the issues. I mean, you're gonna see it when you when you, when you come to the to, to North America, particularly the states. Um, you know, one of the issues with this idea of civil war and militias is um, uh, like we we fat as fuck. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, you're asking a lot of, like, a Jeep to, like, take these, like, fat fucking militia men into the woods. And then, like, they're trying to, like, run through the woods. Like, they can't squeeze between those trees. So, um, you know, I mean, like, this whole idea of, like, civil war in the United States, I'm like, I mean, I know Twinkies are um, unperishable, so at least they can, like, take them into the field. But, you know... uh, well, so, you know, uh, what's her name? Um, this, like, uh, representative from Missouri. Um, uh, I forget her name, but uh, she's, 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 she's a larger woman. And she slept out, like, in front of the Lincoln Memorial to, like, get student loans or not extend student loans or something like that. But she took Twinkies. She was hungry, <laughs> you know? And I'm just like, okay. I mean, she's keeping it real, you know? So my point is... Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think like, you know, these men can be violent too. So, you know, um, obesity, like lipids are a signaler for estrogen. And so, you know, uh, being obese does feminize you. And uh, I think the wiener gets smaller and stuff like that. But also, um, you're less aggressive. And it's really obvious for men that I've known who've undergone massive weight loss. Uh, they have told me like, uh, why do I like want to beat people up all the time? And I'm like, welcome to manhood. <laughs> <laughs> it's just because they can't they can't handle their aggression and they're kind of like angry at people you know they have like they're much more hair triggered than they used to be whereas before they were bathed in like estrogenic hormones triggered by their massive like lipid excess they're like oh, i'm hungry you know <laughs> it's just like <laughs> when's dinner <laughs> you know like <laughs> and now they're just like they're always hungry uh, not because they're big, but because like, you know, they're calorie counting. They're just like angry and they're like, what are you looking at? You know, it's just like, yeah, like, like chill out, chill out. No, but it's just like trans women or men or whatever, um, where they take the testosterone and they're just like, well, why am I so I'm like, it's testosterone. Welcome to my world. I mean, you know, like I haven't killed anybody yet. You don't understand like what a struggle that's been. <laughs> no, <laughs> only half joking. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I do understand what you're saying. And actually it's all about that. In fact, you know, I've always said this, a lot of people whine about social media and all these new mediums. In fact, I say it's a net positive. It's it's a net positive. It has let no, it, it has democratized, over democratized the discourse sometimes because you you come across real dumb freaking people. But at the same time, it has given a release mechanism to so many people that I feel that we might eventually find world peace because everybody will be freaking busy fighting on their on their computer screens and everybody will like, I think the next wars are not going to be fought on the fields. I think the next wars, like you have spoken, your pieces or your essays are about physical wars. Like we get into physical wars, we physically harm each other. I think the best thing about digitization is going to be we're going to hack people's systems. We're going to take their money. We're going to sure. capture their, your banking system. We're going to take out their power sources and stuff like that. That might lead to less loss of lives in that sense. So maybe it's not that bad a thing. Mm. Okay. So uh, I think like, we got to close out with like a comment here that I, I got to point out. Um, and I do allude to it in the piece. Uh, drones. Um, drones have resulted in very much less loss of life for Americans, but a lot more loss of life for other people. Ask Russian generals, you know, mm -hmm. drones and American technology. So, yeah, we have digitized and metaversed uh, some aspects of war. And maybe in the future, uh, wars will be between drone armies, you know, and like, you know, mechs of some sort, robots. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it's not violent. And once one mech or drone army defeats the other, uh, are we gonna? Is this gonna be like cricket? And we're like, okay, you won. We'll we'll give you, you know, some money. You know, all of a sudden, the drones and the robots are just like, okay, we got some organics to rip to shreds. You know, so keeping it real, like I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, we're very creative in being evil as a species. We're very creative in being good too, not hating. But you know, we're Janus faced here. We're two sided. So, uh, and that's how that's what war is like. Uh, war is hell, but war is also creative, you know, so, you know, obviously guns, I mean, I guess it's mostly but it's for hunting, uh, you know, like uh, spears, swords, Roman roads, Roman roads were for the legions, they're still used, the Via Apia is still used, okay, uh, Roman roads are for the legions, airplanes, obviously driven by military, um, trains uh, and railroads were used extensively during wars for logistics, um, obviously a lot of types of like, uh, like, uh, vessels like steamships, you know, a lot of the the wood, or not the wood, um, the metal ships were originally for war. So a lot of things are originally for war, and then they get transitioned into civilian usage. But war is also like you know, look at the tens of millions of people who've died, thousands of people who've died in Ukraine already. Um, America, you know, we've had tens of thousands of deaths in like Iraq and Iraq over twenty years, hundreds of thousands of injuries and casualties. Uh, so the human impact is huge, but, um, uh, there's, there's, there's good things that come out of it too. I think today, um, you know, innovation is driven partly just by the greed and just like wanting to be awesome. So I think one of the keys, uh, is I don't think innovation was driven by like the need for glory, uh, in ancient wars, because like that's a separate issue. I think the innovation was just driven of like we don't want to be killed. Okay, that that's that's straight up. I think what was, but now you know this this need for glory and acclaim uh, that ancient warriors used to get. Now it's just like Elon Musk. Like I want to go to Mars. You know, 
which like you know the, the the Greeks understood that the Olympics were kind of you know they stopped fighting and you know they competed on the field of sport and all that stuff like the Greeks were into competition and they understood uh that you know there was like a war aspect there was like you know the cities were going against other cities and stuff like that so if we find substitutes um we'll get that out of our system um and i think we can find other ways to be creative i i think we can find a better way now than the past way to do certain things right so like you know infanticide was common in almost every society you know 2000 years ago they used to make fun of the egyptians because the egyptians wouldn't do that uh they would take abandoned Greek babies uh, from the garbage pile that they would put babies on. Uh, so, but now infanticide is relatively taboo. Uh, slavery is relatively taboo. So we can change. Um, you know, John Horgan, the science writer, I mean, he wrote a book that I thought was pretty naive. And so, I didn't like the fact that he obviously he didn't like war. So he didn't like certain theories of the naturalness and inevitability of war. But I liked his idea that we can like ha imagine a future with no war. Because we now have a future or a present where there are slaves around, but they're either off the books or um, they're a very small number, you know. But slavery was part of human society for thousands of years to various degrees of ubiquity, right? Um, you know, gender relations in terms of like male-female equality. There's all these things that we've just changed in radical ways, uh, and we probably will continue to do that. And so I don't see why we can't imagine a future when war is kind of a taboo thing, you know, just like a nuclear exchange is a taboo thing right now. You know, um, mm -hmm. we can't abolish war and get rid of it through will. So let's do it. Yeah, I agree with you. Maybe the Russians and the Ukrainians should find the best video game players. They should select a video game and they should just, you know, duke it out, as they say. And whosoever wins the video game wins the war. <laughs> they should maybe consider or our boxers or boxers. Get champions, boxers yeah. have a boxing match, and you know, the, you know what's up. What what is what what is uh, you know, the Donbass is at stake. Hmm? That might be so, like you know that that might be like the the boxing match to end up. I mean, like because there's some strong incentives at stake there. Yeah, the Russians may not agree to a boxing match because Ukraine has far better boxers right now. Yes. They have Alexander yeah. Usyk, they have Lomachenko, and they have yeah. the Klitschko brothers. And Russia is like, yeah. no, we'll go for the MMA match because they have better wrestlers and mixed martial okay. artists. So they might have a problem there. But yeah, I like that. So we'll end on that positive note. Uh, Rajiv, buddy, as always, pleasure talking to you. Yeah, man, it was great. All right, guys, we'll end today's discussion. So before we wrap it up, as always, if you go to the description of the podcast, doesn't matter if you're listening to the audio version or watching this video version, I have left the link of Razib's Twitter handle and Razib's Substack. I would recommend each and every one of you to go and subscribe to his Substack. He writes amazingly well. I wish I could write like him. I can't. I just suck at it. He has he hosts amazing podcasts, especially two particular podcasts that just stood out to me were on immigration. One was pro-immigration, one was anti-immigration. It was just fantastic. And if you like what I'm doing here, please subscribe to the Charvok Podcast YouTube channel or the Spotify and iTunes. Just leave a rating over there. Or you can become a member on YouTube or on Patreon, buy the podcast merch, or support me and send me donations via UPI. I will see you guys next time. Until Wait, then, can, can they hear me? Can they still hear me? Can they still yeah. hear me? Jay yes. Sri Ram! <laughs> Yeah, Jai Shri Ram. Well, uh, we are recording this on, on a day where the Har Har Mahadev chant would have been uh, more ap apropos. So, Wait, Har Har Vesak. Mahadev. It's Vesak, right? Vesak, right? Uh, the, the Buddhist <laughs> No, thing. no.
No, no. So not only the Buddhist thing, today what happened was, uh, so we're recording this on the 17th, right? Or technically we are on the 17th, but what happened today was, so the the court ordered the survey of the Gyanwapi Masjid and they found a shivling there. <laughs> so okay. yeah, so so that's... Allah so Akbar! Yeah. It's all the All right, guys. All right, on that awesome note, I'll see you guys next time. Take care. Bye-bye.